Welcome to Blind Shovel, an arts and music podcast. Today I sit down with folk musician John Dole. Enjoy. John Dole. Yes. That's your real name, full name. Yep. And Dole, Dole Music <laughs> is your project, one of your projects. We were criticized from the very beginning. <laughs> I can imagine. I I was shocked by the name. I liked that that you had a derogatory name for your project. How'd that come about? Was it just as obvious as it seems. <laughs> well, it, it was uh, counterintuitive to what was happening in the arts and, and music. I was told by many so-called experts that you can't have, you can't do that, you can't have that name. So every time that was said, I, I thought, well, that's more of a reason to have it. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a a uh, in-your-face response to how things had to be done. And was it just your music, dull music? Well, that's. it started out that way. It started out as a, fo- as a football coach, I also had a, a, a music side, right? And... Uh, my career was going in football coaching was going in a funny direction. And I thought that I had to make an artistic statement to counteract what mm. was happening in my professional career. And so I was coaching at William Patterson College at the time. And I met a a uh, musician studio engineer there that ran a program and he offered to record some of my songs and then we had a concert so it was uh, used as a kind of a promotional uh, promotional tool for the football program that a, a coach would be singing and into the arts. Interesting. And so the press really jumped on it, you know, and, this, and dull music started to, you know. Now how old were you at that time? It's oh, hard to, I think in my 20s, in my mid-20s. Oh, okay, so it's my, been a long time. Oh, it's been a long time. And how old are you now? <laughs> I am 74. How old are you? 35. You're not supposed to ask that question to people of my to age. To men? I thought it was fair game with men. That was my understanding. Um, oh, so this is from the beginning. So, But also there's this sports, there's this athletics aspect of your life that I find interesting. So at, at that age you were coaching football? Yes. <clears throat> my plan was to, <clears throat> after college, 
uh, as a player, I believed in some of the uh, some of the values that athletics supposedly projected at the time. What would those be? Uh, endurance, uh, hard work, goal setting, um, belief that you can do more than you think you can do, mm-hmm. and. So I, I really wanted to teach those values, having lived them as an athlete. Uh, I wanted to teach them as a coach. And I coached for many years, and then I found that uh, the football that I believed was good was going in a totally opposite direction and now I feel it's the fruition of that thought is happening now with can you explain that it's all money now mm-hmm. there's there's no there's no question of it's all money and uh, inborn talent the mental aspect of the game I don't think is as in my day, if you were a player that was on the edge of being a, a great player and you were a good player, if you could mentally prepare yourself to cross the line into another echelon of, of playing. So, so you're saying now it's, well, it's one, it's hyper-specialized. So you have so many people competing for it because of the money. But two there was an opportunity for anyone in some sense to thrive at the time you were coaching it, if they could just muster the determination. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. that's correct. You heard what I was trying <laughs> what I was trying to say. You probably verbalized it better than I did. <laughs> well, it makes sense. It's, it seems like it was more of um, a place to just turn boys into men, not a place to then build a career or make millions of dollars. Um, so that's an interesting point I've never thought about, that it was maybe more democratic in that, or more accessible. Well, it, it, there was more of a sense of do it for the Gipper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Explain the, to the listeners, they don't know about the Gipper. Uh, the Gipper, <laughs> I, I believe, was a Notre Dame player. and, and uh, uh, was, it a co- was it the coach? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Notre well, Dame is it, a good it, example. The idea was that you were a team and you poured your soul into it for the team. Now it's become, to me, uh, just the opposite. Like it really bothers me when I see people dancing around in the end zone and mm-hmm. everything. And look at me, look at me. I was a lineman. Nobody looked at linemen. Right. <laughs> We, we knocked our heads off to try to get help other players excel. Yeah. And that was your job, and you, you took pride in it, and you, you did whatever you could to succeed at what you were doing, which meant trying yeah. to get to another level. Well, yeah, I think it's very clear. Sports are often a great metaphor for me, if you watch the trajectory. But... Um, in the past, people were drafted to a certain team and they stay there their whole life often, even if management mistreated them in some ways or their team wasn't ever 
had you know had no promise they never left but today especially in basketball uh, people are very much individuals they will leave teams at the drop of a hat to seek a championship today um, but I think that's true of many things um, in society whether it's marriage or business um, as much as I value the individual spirit and the society that cultivates it there are some big issues there in terms of the collective welfare of a team or or anything. Does that make sense? Yeah, very much. I think we're on the same wavelength. I think it's probably our artistic uh, uh, spirits communicating here. Well, but do you find, did you leave sports at that moment? Because I still play sports, and I think they're incredibly valuable. I, my favorite moments in life, probably as obscene as it may sound, have occurred uh, playing sports at, the, at this juncture in my life. Um, so at that moment when you made this, is this in the 60s? What years, what years are we thinking here? Well, I, was, I graduated from college in 72. 72, okay. And uh, went right into a coaching, teaching coaching career up here in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And poured myself into that. Money meant nothing. It was the career, uh, the, the trajectory of the career to help young men realize their full potential. Mm. So yeah. I think if you go back to players that played under me, they would tell you I was pretty brutal coach mm. because I I knew from experience that if you force yourself to go one little step further than you think you can go, yeah. that your mind your mind learns how to expand itself and, and go into that direction. I used to write about this for the local newspaper. Really? As a this player. idea? Yeah, about pushing pushing and, and the teamwork and everything like that. Yeah. How did you bring this brutality into art making? Is it present? Or is it a place to escape that brutality? I always thought that there was a co- connection now, nowadays, the, the I think the arts and uh, athletics are much closer than they were in the '60s. But to be a folk singer and a football player in the '60s was very strange. <laughs> and the football program at Duke actually used it to try to help create a bridge between the intellectual community and the athletic community. So they let me have concerts in the football meeting hall and invite the campus. Hmm. And that was actually the beginning of the thought that the two are one, it's mind. To me, football was mind. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. Most people wouldn't think that. So that's, that's cool to hear that you emphasize the mind there. At least when I went to art school, there wasn't even a sports program. I would, I would organize sports. Um, but it was very clear to me that artists had forsaken their bodies entirely, smoking cigarettes instead of eating breakfast, not sleeping on time. There seemed to be almost like an ascetic quality where it was, let's destroy 
the body because it represents I still think there is a schism in some ways it represents the jock it repre represents the meathead um, but it doesn't make sense I mean you can't perform at any if you don't take care of your body in the long term it's very hard to perform as an artist or anything so I always thought it was silly that that was not an emphasis at my school but it, I could understand back then too Personas were less complex, it's, if I can imagine. It seemed like you had to be a, a thing, one thing, pretty <laughs> clearly. Now you can be 15 different things. You can be very confused, you can, or you can integrate those things. But uh, as you were saying earlier about long hair, like, and I was saying, you know, long hair could mean a lot of things now. It could mean very little, actually. Um, or someone dresses like a lumberjack now. Doesn't mean they're a lumberjack. But in your time, I imagine people were a little more simply projecting what they were, but you were caught in the middle of two things there. Well, pre-60s, pre it was father knows best, and uh, Ozzie and Harriet, and, you know, leave it to Beaver. Mm -hmm. Th those are common, uh, those are common visions that are given, given about that era. And it was true. It was post-World War II, 50s, and middle America was trying to, to make enough money to have a good job to supply, to get a house and to be in a nice neighborhood. It, it was, that was your understanding of, of the direction of your life. And the, uh, I think it was maybe mostly the artistic community really broke from that. And then with the Vietnam War and, and uh, the uh, um, civil rights movement, it gave platforms for thought that broke that mold. Hmm. And so people, for a while, you had to be on one side or the other. Yeah. But then... There was a lot of cross that people started to realize that, hey, these long-haired kids that are fighting against Vietnam may have something. Mm -hmm. So when you made that transition, or, you know, let's use the metaphor of that program at Duke where you're kind of used as the bridge, is that something that you remain to be, or did you just kind of go over to the art side, or did you constantly go back and forth between these two modalities? I think by default I've, I've had to go back and forth. Yeah. You know. So um, what did that look like over time? Do you, did you play sports? Did you continue to coach sports while writing the folk songs? Or how did that, we'll call it for simplistic sake, more traditional mode uh, follow through in your life? Well, it, um, you're asking all the questions that I ask myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Actually, as a coach, I was still writing songs and I was playing guitar. And uh, it about almost anything in particular, content-wise. Songs would just come to me. Mm -hmm. It's like you know, you're an artist. Sometimes things just come to you, and you yeah. have to you have to respond to it. Uh, we were taught as, as 
I mean, the thinking of the early days was that you didn't give in to these wild thoughts of, you know. Sure. Well, if you want to be a full person, you have to give in to these wild inspirations and and thought. Otherwise, you're blocking out an entire part of your mind and the, the, the duality of everything and the yin and the yang has always been one of the things that I believe the human race struggles with. Well, because it isn't clear uh, if it should be. Some people, I don't think some people are even interested in embodying that duality within themselves. They're happy to be simply one half of it and be antagonistic to another individual who represents the other half or a nation who represents one half. So I think it's just a small percentage of people who are truly trying to integrate all of that into themselves and uh, or into a relationship, right? Like um, it isn't clear to me if marriage, in marriage it, it seems that I suspect each individual is changing and rotating in that yin and yang, right? But you make a decision there to to participate in a bigger yin and yang than yourself, which I think is noble. I suppose it can keep enlarging out to society or coaching, and that would be the more noble end than, I think, than retreating into yourself completely um, as a, although I respect monks, etc. But I don't think it's, if I'm being honest, I just, in the brief time I've had here, I don't think most people are even interested in this topic. It's just, you know, if they're happy to be a kind of simplified form in this life, in this world, you know. And no, no, no judgment there, really, if that's... Well, we all, we all yearn for structure. We do. Structure gives us stability and uh, decreases anxiety, I guess. But structure... (laughs) also uh, become stagnant. So when you have someone step outside of the structure, uh, they're either murdered or killed, or they bring the structure to another level. Both can happen, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Both often happen together. Uh, Because logically, you know, it's an interesting part of art. It's like, can you can you really expect to be ahead of the curve, ahead of the masses, but commodify it at the same time? Because the market is predicated on, uh, you know, I think the average person understanding something and buying it. So it, it's actually, I think there's many talented artists who've done both. I think they're exceptionally rare. But there's many artists who are, like you said, they're kind of beyond the system or way ahead of it and they die broke and that's the consequence of being ahead you know um but is that something that you felt you were trying to do in those within the folk music i know folk music has that element i don't know a ton about folk music but can you speak to the your inspirations or you know you've been making it for 50 plus years right you still make it correct yes yeah uh Dylan was one of the big, and for a lot of people my age, Dylan, yep. Dylan was the bridge between the structure and and the chaos. And uh, Where, why is that? Because he's like uh, traditional in some sense. Folk well, he was traditional. traditional, right? 
he he grew up on Woody Guthrie. Yeah. But Woody Guthrie was not a traditionalist. Woody Guthrie was a rebel. He right. traveled all over the country and helped unions organize. But then when the government hired him to write songs about the Grand Coulee Dam or something like that, he he cooperated with that. So he he was a, a, a strange figure. And Pete Seeger uh, gravitated towards Woody Guthrie and... and they traveled together on, on in boxcars and yeah. and uh, so Seeger became a huge influence for me. But the earliest was Dylan, and Dylan, when he was making a transition, like when he was booed off the stage when he started playing rock and roll at I think the Newport Folk or uh, Folk Festival, he came out electric and they booed him off the stage. Um, he was always seemed to be a step ahead of what was happening. So he was a, a huge influence early in my life. And then having later met Pete Seeger, he became like a real mentor to me. I, How would you describe the difference between the two for someone who doesn't care or listen to either? Well, Seeger died at age 94 or something several years ago so he was much older he he was folk when there was folk wasn't even a topic you know I got in trouble with the Seegers once uh, <laughs> and it was right over here at the Williams Center yeah sure uh, they had always been very generous to our family uh, in coming down and helping us with concerts, because they believed that we were, some of the issues we were standing for were issues that they would stand for. So, but I was kind of a youngster and I was all excited that Pete Seeger was gonna come to Rutherford and, and I was behind the stage and Pete and Toshi were very close and politically close uh, relationship, close everything. Okay, and I was behind backstage with them, and I said something stupid like, "Isn't this folk music thing so great? This thing that was born in the '60s in Greenwich Village." Well, they went nuts. They, they really came down on me, and they said, "Don't you understand?" As kids, they traveled all over the world. They spent their last dollars traveling all over the world recording and filming folk music in all these remote places all over the world. So he was a real musicologist. And he was saying, don't you understand that this thing is everywhere and that it was born, it's... It's a human need that's born everywhere. There's folk music everywhere. And so I made some mental adjustments at the time and try to sing some foreign folk songs mm -hmm. periodically. <laughs> How old were you at that time of that occurrence? Gee, I'm bad at this. That would have to have been in the 90s. Okay. So I was, I was I'm maybe in my late 30s, but I, to me, that's being a youngster, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and uh, I had experienced Greenwich Village. I'd go in there, and, and we used to, you know, the open stages in Greenwich Village. And and who's we in this context? Uh, I guess. Well, there there were people. I had friends that were musicians. And would that be under the Dole Music umbrella? Uh, no. Dole Music is just you? Uh, I would think so. I mean, I think we had to change the name from Dole Music to, when, when we produced other artists, we had to change it to J.M.H. Dole Productions. I saw That's that, yeah. John, Martin, Helen, my son and my wife, okay? John do Martin, they all do they both make music? Yeah, JMH Dole Productions is a company that produces music and events. Okay. Hmm. Dole music is just kind of a more of an artistic expression of who I guess I am more yeah. so than even my family. And so, we spoke earlier, is your family a family of artists, like going back? My wife's family were activists, not artists, but activists, okay. And they stood on the far side of a lot of common thinking back, going way back. Okay, they, they were Irish Catholic activists okay? out of Jersey City. And so Helen was brought up in that, with that idea that you think and you don't accept the status quo, okay? Yes. My own family was born in, in, in the arts. My dad was a photographer mm. uh, by, by profession. He worked... Uh, in what's now Christie's, he was uh, he was an independent photographer that leased space and did the photography for Christie's and Pork Burnett. So he he was always exposed to the arts, f photographing art collections and and uh, cattle uh, for catalogs of the wealthy. <laughs> Interesting. And so we were brought up in that, and then. My brothers got into athletics in our hometown, and so that kind of surfaced at that time, you know, in high schools. So if you had to describe dull music, obviously it's folk, right? That's an important aspect of it. I would think, unless my son continues the name, and he's he was just labeled a, as an emo artist by really? a reviewer. <laughs> So. Well, there's a lot of emo in New Jersey. It's a thing. But what is the, if you had to describe it for someone who hadn't listened to it, how would you do so? What is it about, uh, you know, over the 50 years of you making it, how would you condense it down? Condense what? Just describing what music you've made in your life. Is it guitar? It's, what is it's, your strength? What is? Uh, it's based more in lyric than in melody. So po it's almost poetic. Yes, exactly. It's poetry put to music. And your instrument of choice is guitar? It's the only instrument I play. I'd love to have played the piano, but do you play an instrument? I'm, I'm just kidding. I played bass briefly. Really? I like staccato, 
even in my drawings, I like very clear uh, imagery, black and white, so I like staccato bass playing, just very clear notes, very simple. Um, but I think it was one of the earliest examples of me saying to myself, just because you like something doesn't mean you need to do it. You know, I was already doing so many visual things, mm -hmm. and I have the propensity to dabble, um, something I try to refine as I get older. Um, so I played bass for two, three years, and I certainly relish the moments of bliss that can occur while playing music with others. It's a very strange feeling that you won't find in art. It's basically impossible. I don't know how you would find it in art uh, when people just start smiling and, or laughing when something is clicking. At least that was my experience. Um, but I think ultimately, I just said to myself, this isn't the structure I'm interested in. Um, I think music gives me more fuel spiritually throughout the day. Um, but I think what I was given is a gift for visual art. So I think you have to kind of contend with that. You have to be real about, despite what we're saying about pushing through and entering the next level, I think there's also the reality of what you're given in life and how to maximize what you're given. Well, to me, and I'm, uh, I may be wrong here, mm -hmm. but uh, you just sparked a thought that maybe art... Uh, the visual arts is much more of an individual enterprise than music playing with other people. I mean, you don't do art with other people, right? I mean, you I share have, art. I started to do that later in my 20s and found it quite enjoyable, but I thought it was going to be antithetical to getting better at art initially, but for me... Um, it actually showed me quite clear, clearly what I was good and bad at. Um, I do collaborate with my friends on books and etc. And uh, that is certainly feels more musical. You're kind of compromising and contending with different personalities. But yeah, I would have to agree with you that I think in general art is a more singular activity. I think the rigidness of music the scales, the mathematical structure, already lend itself to some kind of com uh, collective, universal uh, notion. And frankly, music is so much more important um, to our culture, I think, than visual art. Uh, musical artists can be godlike. The highest, you know, the most important fine artists fairly irrelevant, I think, to the common person. It's just different. They don't uh, art doesn't really infiltrate the same way, uh, I don't think. I mean, design does, you know, commercials mm -hmm. like we were talking mm -hmm. about. Uh, and there's, there's pros and cons to that, obviously. I think music can be incredibly dangerous. Um, and for all the finger-wagging of, like, Elvis's hips, etc., right, right. <laughs> you can go back to that moment and say, oh, maybe there's something to be said about the Pandora's box that music can unleash culturally. Um, I don't think we can be naive to the fact that ingesting lyrical content in a hypnotic way can influence your behavior. I'm certainly not advocating for any sensorial things, but I think it's just being mindful of uh, and respecting the music you listen to and understanding 
when you listen to this, it brings out a certain side of you. And it can be quite seductive. And I think that's what those people were concerned about, um, you know, in the early 1900s or whatever. That was a ramble, but... No, uh, I, we're on the same page here. I believe that music is uh, a universal language. I think that art is too, but somehow the visual is um, less... I don't know, I'm searching for words here, less acceptable to the mind than okay. music. Music kind of hypnotizes you into, uh, in other words, you, you can <clears throat> get lyrics over that would be offensive to some people <laughs> if you yeah. have a good melody behind them. Well, it, it goes away, you know? It, it has a time structure and those words were said and now they're gone. In a, in a drawing or painting, it's kind of frozen and present. Um, so that may be true that you can get away with a bit more there. But it, you'll often find that musicians are artists also. Yeah, and vice versa. And vice I think versa, it's about yeah. rhythm. I, I think, I don't know if you know about Rudolf Steiner and the Waldorf school and this kind of idea, but what he always emphasized is even in homemaking the daily rhythm and that that's your focus is like trying to find the correct rhythm of life and i think that's the the thread to me is um because there's ways you could i've met people who abandon art making or music making um because they wanted to live in a certain rhythm and to kind of integrate it in that sense and i thought they did live rhythmically at a higher level um, they seem to understand the lessons of art and music and integrate that into their life um, more tangibly more externally as well so I think it's that's the thing is rhythm is that unif like obviously visual art has rhythm but it's not bound um, in the same way by the the way that music goes through time and and ends and starts um, maybe because we're visual creatures we take art for granted we look at things all the time but we, we don't hear beautiful things all the time at least in modern society you know there's a I've, I've found and this is maybe one of my prejudices I've found that uh, there are some artistic schools that are elitist. Hmm. And you you're know, saying that in the negative sense? Um, I don't know if it's negative. I think it's human. They, they. Uh, Which schools do you, do you well, say? Well, you know, like uh, progressive art. The what do you call it? Um, if 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 I went to a, there's classical painting, and then there's. Modern art? Abstract Mo modern art. Cubism. Yeah, those things. Do uh, you feel those are elite? Well, I think that there are people that would enjoy that type of art that think that 
they can enjoy, but Joe Schmo on the street couldn't because they couldn't understand that art. And I and that this bothers me a little this bit. You know, and you don't feel that's present in music, or it's less. Oh present? yeah, oh, oh it's it's yeah, it is present. Like jazz for some is is yeah. noise, and to others it's it's a higher art. It can go either way for me. You know, that's for sure. No, that's fair. I mean, that's a common criticism of contemporary art, and it's valid. Um, and it's something that I later valued about the Christian mode of art making was as I step back and reassess Christianity it really is a religion for the average person and and how they live their life and that every person has value and the art shows that I think anyone uh, if an alien showed up tomorrow with no cultural understanding none of the his history of why the art was made or the context I think seeing a Caravaggio would be obviously something exceptional, but seeing abstract expressionism or a color field painting, they would walk right past it. Or a caveman or something, right? You drop a Caravaggio on a caveman and you, and they, they would never know how to get there. It would almost be impossible for them to get there. Mm -hmm. um, but there's plenty of contemporary art where I feel and largely it's a problem of them. It's, they start to over-philosophize, and, and that created an elitism, I think, that, that it started to become overly academic. But there's, there's stuff that's supposedly visual art that is completely uninteresting visually, uh, but then you read the philosophy behind it, and it could be interesting. But then it's just write an essay. I have no interest in that cross-pollination. <laughs> I think things should be as they... I believe in a kind of rigid categorization that is broken at times, but nonetheless exists. So, uh, and that's what folk is an interesting example because, obviously, uh, by definition, it's again for folk, for the people. Um, but but it was also part of this revolution. So it was this traditional mode used to break something. Maybe that's how I. No, that that was, that's is at least part of the '60s in a nutshell. Hmm. And so you were young in the '60s. You were uh, in the in my 20s, right? And do you or, or, do what or, is your feeling about I, that? Growing up in that, is there any sense of nostalgia? Yeah. Well, well, basically, college was. An unhappy time for me, Duke. because Duke. yeah, because first of all, there was uh, there were probably five guys for every girl on the Duke campus. Oh yeah, <laughs> so it was well, a, that makes sense, yeah. you you were almost like a monk uh, during that time, but. And it wasn't a party school. It was like an intellectual school, but it was battling with itself because it was a southern school. And during my time, they were recruiting the first blacks into Duke. Mm -hmm. And uh, you had these southern fraternities, which were like rednecks. Mm. And you had uh, black organizational groups. And you had independent uh, groups, and they were all basically battling. 
at that time. Where did you find yourself? Uh, I chose to be independent, but most football players were parts of some type of fraternity. And so I was labeled as, you know, the outsider in that regard. And uh, that this was painful. It was, yeah. it was, I was isolated in a sense. I think this is, everyone I interview who's an artist, this theme of being the outsider, it sounds cliche, but it's just true. Um, and someone has to be it. Um, it is painful, but I think it's a thing that matures you over time in a different way. I think those earlier... Uh, aspects of life, high school and college, can be quite painful for outsiders. But later in life, I find that this can be very beneficial to retaining autonomy, navigating many systems that I think are designed to uh, shackle you. You know what I mean? But you're, but you're, that skepticism, that that fringe quality, I think is good. You know, I think it protects you. A bit and in a sense you know that your decisions are your own you know so do you still feel like an outsider I, I think I am an outsider but what does it mean so like what does it mean for an outsider to be in a relationship or to have a child because those things require going inside you know to being related to well I thought what you said about growing up as an outsider prepares you for later in life. I believe that that's true because I believe that you have to learn. It forces you to learn how to communicate on both ends of the spectrum. True. So when you become a communicator, which you are having a podcast, okay, mm -hmm. it's uh, maybe it's because you see life in a different way and you see relationships in a different way. Relationships can be very stagnant things like business relationships, you know. Mm -hmm. Very utilitarian that this yeah. person offers this to the table and therefore I will utilize that. Yeah. Whereas it, it's funny and I don't know if we're, uh, I'm making too big a jump, but one of the big topics in business now, and I'm sure it's going to uh, have a, a huge, it's going to grow exponentially, is the topic of emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. EQ versus mm -hmm. IQ. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a school of thought that EQ is more important in business than IQ. In other words, People that rise sure. in business often have good people skills, are able to communicate well, and they have an emotional intelligence. In other words, they can read the real uh, person that they're communicating with. Or, yeah. I mean, I think it's completely contingent upon the business, right? There's many businesses that are mechanistic and cog-like, efficiency models, actually. I don't, I don't know how much EQ is required for running a factory, um, you know, in an industrial sense. But, uh, yeah, I think about that a lot. I mean, I think there's plenty of people who would suggest I don't have very high EQ. 
<laughs> and I wouldn't uh, argue uh, with that per se. I'm not sure what it means. I guess I. Um, in, why, in why would you do a podcast if you didn't want to explore the the emotions and uh, mm. intelligence, or or get into a, a true communication with another person? Well, yeah, no, that's absolutely. Uh, I guess the word emotion is quite complex to me. I'm definitely after the truth or the true essence of an individual. But I don't. That's not an emotion to me. That's a. That's an exploration. That's a. Uh, that's something way beyond emotion. You know, I grapple with, especially as an artist, but as as a person who's pragmatic. You know, and I have to run a business, etc. I grapple with the utility of emotion. You know, actually, I I think I see emotion through a, often a utilitarian frame. Um, but that's been true for a long time for me. I don't like. Give me an example. I'm I'm not sure. I told you. Sure, sure. Um, if I'm angry, right? Uh, my my next thought becomes, what can I do with this anger? It's not like I'm interested in validating that emotion or or uh, dispelling it. I'm I'm interested in. Uh, especially from an athletics pr perspective, right? Like anger is interesting to me in athletics. You could, I've seen people get angry and they get far better at the sport they're playing. I've seen people get angry and they become absolutely horrible at what they're doing. Um, and so for me, like, I don't know if it's a, a sign of high EQ or low IQ to, to look at emotion through the, fr the frame of uh, utility. Like what can I do with anger? Uh, this is a complex topic. I think there's many metaphors that have been discussed over history about the chariot. You know, I don't know. I don't have the exact metaphor, but it's always struck me that that's that like the horses are emotion, and the in the the mm -hmm. chariot rider is intellect. And usually those those structures that are a little more complicated like that are the best way that I can understand the complexity of being human. As opposed to what often happens with um, media and studies is, okay, IQ's out, EQ's in, and there's kind of this, this endless selling of the new, um, well, what, <laughs> simplification? Maybe? See, uh, this is an interesting topic to me because uh, there's a part of me that would like to think that I'm a futurist. Futurist. Uh, I like to think of where all this is going mm -hmm. from where it is now. So where is it going? And well, I would say that machines, robotics, AI is going to take over IQ. I mean, a machine can be an accountant. Even the greatest accountants or the greatest chess players, a machine can take over that, mm -hmm. okay? But I wonder whether machines will be able to take over EQ or that artistic, whether a machine will really ever be able to become... Uh, uh, they'll probably create machines that can be creative, but I think that there's 
this all goes down to spirituality. I was so. going to say it's a metaphysical problem. <laughs> you know, that's, it's funny. I, don't, I view it from the lens of industrialization replaced men. You know, in fact, there's a lot of penile-shaped things, pistons. It's just very like a male world, okay. the world of industrialization. And obviously, men used to do a lot of the things that machines now do. And then they just became the managers of the machines. Um, and in some ways, I think, lost purpose entirely. Um, for like a more traditional man, I think industrialization was a huge shock to their identity. I believe AI will be the feminine uh, destroyer in the sense, the energy destroyer in the sense of they will build nurses who understand your psychology and respond compassionately, quote unquote, and creativity will be, um, you know, I think threatened, like human creativity. And I think we will then be left with, <laughs> From a utility perspective, where both men and women, uh, masculine and feminine, will be asking themselves where they fit into a world of this nature. And uh, that's disturbing to me. And I do believe that only a world with soul can recognize the lack thereof. And I'm not sure we will have the spiritual literacy or aesthetic literacy to understand the value of human interaction or creation. Um, but I will be optimistic. I, will, I think we're going to have to ask ourselves what it means to be human, most important. Okay. And some well, will think it's wrong to be human. You know? Well, let, let me ask you a question. Sure. Uh, as an artist, you've had creative inspiration where you're lost in something comes to you and it all kind of overtakes you and, and it becomes uh, like a vision or... or... Without a doubt. Yeah. Okay. So, do you feel in your life that that is a spiritual experience? Without a doubt. Yeah. And there's, there's artists I know who would suggest no, that they're simply remixing memories and cultural ephemera. But... I think that's an insufficient explanation to the manner in which you receive and complete ideas. Um, it's a completely mysterious force. But the question then becomes, um, who's sending it down? And is it a neutral, benevolent, or evil force? I think all three are actually possible. Um, but we don't ask that question much, you know? We say, oh, we got, like the muse is a neutral idea. I think, or it's God as love or something. Okay, you know what I mean. But, mm -hmm. but obviously, those who made it in a Christian mode, they thought it was coming from that Abrahamic God, and it reflects the the values of that structure, the art they made. Now, I won't get into certain spirits, um, but I think it's fair to suggest that some music is made uh, with more demonic uh, inspiration. Or there's this particular spirit, Ironmon, Ironmonic inspiration. And uh, I think there are battles at the spiritual level at play. So I used to view it kind of simply like, oh, I got ideas. Now time to execute the idea. Now I'm kind of like, I got an idea. But what is it in the service of? Does that make sense? Yeah. Where is this going? Who's con what's controlling? Essentially something is controlling me. 
Um, but sometimes I feel like you have to have the door open and something controls you and you, you don't know to what end till it's done, which is kind of frightening. Uh, but art is frightening. Real art is frightening, basically. It's horrifying. Well, that's, that's why you, you won't... There's a movement to get art out of schools. <laughs> well, there's a, there's, a, there's a movement to get art out of everything, in a sense, yeah. because those in power are threatened by the new or the, the innovative in the, in the arts or in anything, frankly. And uh, the desire to control art in any form is something I'm opposed to, but it's, I'm, I understand why people try to do it. You know, if a king is mocked or something, mm -hmm. if, if this is... Uh, it is only a testament to the power of art. I think artists should always protect other artists' ability to express anything, but I think it only logical that the government will always seek to suppress it. And that's its role. Well, it's not interested in art. It's interested in power. So, so it's, it's, it's going back to structure versus yeah. stepping outside of the structure with a little bit of chaos. <laughs> but I respect each yeah. un, unto itself. Right. Yeah. You know? like, well, it, it, why not? Yeah. Why, why would you? Like, I don't ex I'm not naive enough to think my government is interested in facilitating genuine art making. It's just I don't believe in that, you know. Uh, and I also think it's an unholy matrimony. Those things should not meet. And I, I almost believe that about school as well. Um, I think school is great for technical cultivation. But I saw it destroy many artists' souls, the souls. Mm -hmm. They go through school, they're in debt, and they have no interest in making art anymore because it's been systematized. Right. And once it was, it used to be theirs. Well, they could become graphic artists. Well, hey, <laughs> I find great joy in graphic design because it's communication, right? Okay. It's like a beautiful... It can be a very beautiful activity and very invigorating. I'm not totally downing that, but I, <laughs> I think that that, that is, uh, that there are graphic artists that I, now I'm becoming an elitist. Go ahead. There's, there are graphic artists that are probably not artists in my definition of an artist. Oh, no, certainly. Well, they're like, there's dark wizards, right? There's people who sell you things via seductive visual imagery that is a, it's a lie, right? So the distance between the product and the design, uh, if it's great, it's a lie. It's just a lie. And then there's those who shine the proper light upon the product. And they say, this thing is great for you and your life. And they're not manipulating you via desire. So... Of course, propaganda is similar. It can be done in a similar sense, but uh, art is effectively about transcendence. So, and I think, you know, you can find that in many places. Well, then you get down to what is transcendence. And to me, that is, that to me, there's your, there, there's your, there's your fusion between athletics and art because Transcending a limitation, or there are transcendent moments in athletics, and when you experience them, you know that they're transcendent. They're not. I think um, many athletes can experience things that people um, they've pushed themselves to a point be beyond what is considered the limit, mm -hmm. and they. 
there's a transcend there's a mental transcendent um, experience that a lot of people in humdrum life uh, have yet to experience. For instance, you go to uh, you start interviewing players after they win the World Series. Mm-hmm. How do you feel right now? They say, I can't put it into words. Right. And that's exactly what they're experiencing. They're experiencing something that is you can't codify or put into a box. It's beyond that. And when I'm, I'm going to ask you when, you, when your child comes into this world mm-hmm. and you're present, I'm wondering what type of experience you're going to have. Well, I'll let you know when that happens. Yeah. I'm assuming transcendent. I'll be a bit concerned if not. <laughs> um, well, because, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's in the most literal sense. How, how else could you transcend yourself if not making another human? Uh, it's, it is the most literal path towards that. But it's also interesting in spiritual practices. I mean... If you really think about it, nobody is married or having children uh, in any of these stories. Buddha, Christ. Right. You know, it's like they are in much That's more it. in the isolation mode. And uh, well, what is your That's experience of having a, you have one son. Right. And you play music together. Yes. Yeah. What is that experience like? Uh, the music or the birth? Just the whole journey, you know, it's interesting. Martin's birth was a transcendent. Yeah. For me, and I'm sure for my wife. Yeah. Because when the doctor held Martin up for the first time, like kind of raised him up, times, like transcendent experiences, time stops. Yeah. There's a moment that doesn't have time. It's it's contained in itself. Artists understand that, I think. Artists yeah. experience transcendent experiences. And so there was a transcendent experience of, uh, of the birth. And so actually per- performing with him and sometimes opening for him mm-hmm. is is very much a, a continuation of that spiritual journey. I don't often would not often talk about this. You you're a good uh, podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's the beauty of of having a child. Is also. I don't know. I, I remember I went to Disneyland way too late in my life. I was like 25. I'd never been there. But it, for some reason during that trip, I was shocked by the the rhythm and pattern of a older person with a little thing that looked like them <laughs> at a different scale. Right? And then I, know, I recognized in some sense that that rhythm is so natural and essential that it's very odd in modernity that we were able to break it or at least delude ourselves into breaking it. Like you can live a really, uh, or you can try to live a very monotonous life these days in a sense, right? Like a kind of flat life. Maybe you work the same, you're in a career mode. This is what you do. You seek pleasure and comfort. 
and then you die. Mm-hmm. I think this is a trick, a deception. Um, but I think it is in the service of comfort in, in a lot of ways. Uh, there's this kind of idea about having a child or children that it's going to be hell. or But that's a mis- misunderstanding. Well, I'll let you know when it occurs to me. But I think this the thread is this. Like Those are the moments you grow in athletics or in life or in music and art. It's very obvious that when you're pushed to your limits, you break through something uh, in a way not previously imagined or imaginable. And obviously human civilizations are do this as well. And so for as much as I might um, lament AI in some ways, I have to also ask myself, there seems to be some mysterious trajectory that no one human planned or knows about civilization. It's all rather surreal. It's not clear. We didn't get together and say, uh, this is how the last 1,000 years will look, and we're going to end up at AI. But clearly something pulled us (laughs) to it, to either end us and send us back to a more humble period or to send us off, probably, into something else. So I think I have to always trust that. Um, But as bizarre as it sounds, I've had moments in Frisbee, Ultimate Frisbee, uh, where I essentially blacked out and did something unimaginable to myself, something beautiful, uh, and then people would tell me it, and I had no—I have no recollection of doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's so insane to talk about. Uh, I think, especially for more arts-focused people, that this could happen in like a recreational league, you know, uh, in New Jersey on turf. Mm-hmm. with cement underneath it. Uh, but I would, I mean, I just can't emphasize enough the beauty of the shame, the the kind of celebration of sports. It's just a very beautiful uh, microcosm of what you have to deal with in society. Uh, and I think it helps you grow. Just like music, I think, you know, I don't, are you a strictly, or do you mostly make in a singer-songwriter mode? Or do you work with others in like a band group kind of mostly singer songwriter but it's it's kind of evolved into some band type experiences you know Mm. and uh, which I'm not opposed to it's just um, If you have a full-time job, <laughs> maintaining sure. a band, if everybody's got a full-time job, just sure. is, becomes, you know. So if you want to express your art, you kind of better think you better get it done by yourself sure, with sure. the cooperation of other people if they so desire to cooperate. Um, but to create a band, at my age, it's, that would be ludicrous. But at, even at Marty's age, he's 38, right? To create a band when most people are trying to put bread on the table as well as yeah. uh, nourish their art um, w- would be difficult or not really necessary to, you know. Well, but you could do it. I guess you could. (laughs) (laughs) 
do you did you find that your creative output over the 50 or so years was consistent or was there a kind of undulating productivity and quality i'm curious about people's when i'm always curious about people who have a very high vantage point over their creative output did you notice that quality went you know in waves or up only well, and what do you call it when you're you're uh, you're in a dead point in your in your creative mind uh, a writer's block all right yeah there, yeah there are certainly at least for me and I can't talk to everyone I do know artists that will work themselves through a writer's block yeah, very by admirable. forcing themselves uh, to me that was never me and I don't know if that's because I'm lazy or it's because I just I'm waiting for the muse you never know you know it could be both I feel it the same could, way oh really okay. yeah yeah I, I, I more, I'm more skeptical or suspicious of myself typically, so I, I usually accuse myself of laziness if I'm on that, you know, in that moment. And uh, I think fortunately as well with, and probably with music, but with art, there are many activities that require no inspiration. You know, they're just uh, very, you know, you got to color a big space black. So if you got a writer's block, you do that. Or I'm assuming okay. if you got to edit a track, that you know, like there's these moments that you can find a lower version of yourself can execute. I also believe, yeah, you should just make bad stuff, maybe not show it, and just push and push. But they're very different ways of thinking. Waiting for the muse versus like almost an athletic mindset of just go, go until you, you know, shoot a basketball until it goes in. Mm -hmm. I don't think athletes have the, you know, but you see it. Sometimes they're visited by something special, athletes, I think, some higher power. Well, I think some some pro teams are actually hiring psychologists to help people oh, yeah. reach that. Yeah. And, uh, an interesting story for me, and I have great respect for her, was Simone Biles, mm -hmm. the uh, gymnast. Yeah. yeah. How she took, what, two years off because... Her head wasn't in sync with her body. Right. And she brought, and she was criticized for that. And I'm saying, no, she's correct. Yeah. She's sense. doing, that's why she is the greatest, because she was able to realize that. Yeah, it's an you interesting know? realization. You know. But that's rhythm. It's in a sense, it's the rhythm of, of things being out of sync and dissonant. But it's so it's kind of an interesting thing. I think in your daily life, it's always important to have a kind of clear rhythm, which you spoke to me on the phone about. It seems like you have a very clear day, often. At this time, you do this. If if you don't have some organization, especially when you're a disorganized person, are you are you disorganized? I I would say um, I have to force myself organize I'm a list maker I make lists all the time sure. to try to figure out which thing is better to do before this so I save time while doing of course, this of course. and you know um, I think my mind needs that structure otherwise I'd be you know my favorite time is early in the morning having a cup of coffee and just letting my mind 
go wherever it wants to go. Mm -hmm. And I find that gives me strength uh, for the day. It really does, you know. So, If people want to listen to your music, where can they do that? Well, uh, there are... I'm finding that there are several YouTube <laughs> yeah. uh, expressions. Uh, if uh, there was a television show called Horses Sing None of It, it's, uh, it's hosted by a folk musician, country musician in western New Jersey. Um, and he... Uh, he hosted a friend of myself and myself. Recently? Uh, uh, no, this was quite a long time ago. Most of my internet stuff is ancient. And there are tapes of a fellow named Ted Clancy and myself. We did a whole TV series, a filler series for a cable company uh, way back in the 80s, I think, or the 90s. And they're actually very professional and well done. Hey, but when you look back, is there a particular song or moment or concert that you can identify as the clear peak? Even if it's not recorded. Is there a mo Like, I'm curious when I'm your age, am I going to be able to look back and say, all right, that book right there or that album, uh, in your instance, that's it, you know? and. Uh, my life was in service of, creatively speaking, in that. Well, I had a very private moment once with, with Pete Seeger that, to me, was transcendent. And uh, Pete performed his last concert ever in New Jersey uh, with our production company. So mm. that, that was, and it was a sellout crowd, and it was... Uh, there are a lot of transcendent, you know, transcendent meaning that the audience, without invitation, just stood and clasped arms and swayed to the songs, you know, like We Shall Overcome and things like that. Very transcendent. And then um, I had a personal experience, Marty and I and a, a great banjo player by the name of uh, Tony Trishka had a private meeting with Pete a few days before he passed away. And he sang a song for us, and that was really transcendent. Because it, uh, the song was actually his almost the self-eulogy, where he, when these fingers can strum no longer, hand the old banjo to someone stronger, to young ones stronger. He was like passing mm -hmm. the tradition the folk tradition down. Um, that was an incredible experience that I, I don't often share because I can't do it justice. Uh, no, that's a good answer. So, but, you know, and I, I have four albums that they can, our website is now functioning during COVID, it just kind of shut down. But it's dullmusic.com, and uh, there are little tits and tats, and it's be and it's getting more active every day. So, I think you'll find a lot of video on there. You know, within the next three weeks, there'll be oh, a nice. lot of video, 
and uh, we'll probably open a YouTube channel oh, yeah. um, in the near future. But And you have a concert like... coming up? Well, that's uh, another part of your uh, being that we'll, we'll have to sit down and discuss because you are the manager of the yeah, yeah. Carlos Williams Center for the Arts, and we'd love to. Your staff mm -hmm. did a beautiful job with our last two concerts, and so we're, we're very enamored that the Williams Center is, is on the move again. Nice. It's exciting. And congratulations, and you're doing a great job. Thank you. And uh, Well, yeah, we should, uh, if we get a date, I think we have one on the calendar that we have to discuss. We have, we, we've discussed some, yeah. but I think we're looking towards May now. Well, we'll put Everything. this out before, so people know. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Sure. And now, after this discussion, I complete, you know, I love that logo. Oh, okay. And now I completely understand that logo. <laughs> I'll use it as the image for this. It's a, it's a, is that was that made during that time, that time at Duke? That was made afterwards. Um, Can you we had that? an office yeah. on Glen Road, mm -hmm. and the Williams Center was lacking any programming, so uh, they invited us to start bringing some programming into the Williams Center. This was years ago. I, I, like I said, I'm bad with years. Mm -hmm. I think it had to be in the 90s. Yeah. And so we started bringing shows to the Williams Center. And who made this invitation. image? Very alluring. There was, I met a woman who was a visual artist, and she uh, worked for us on Glen Road for a long time and we were trying to come up with a logo and like you said she uh, you kind of understand yeah, yeah everything the, everything is there that's why i like it but even well, when I she saw had it, that I said, vision this is strange this is a strange image yeah. you know i said this is notably strange some music and a football helmet and this kind of fusion yeah I could tell it represented something deep, a complexity, you know? Well, it came from, from her inner being after working and tr trying to understand w what the mission was of, of the business and where we were going and everything. She came up with this idea, and I looked at it, and I, my jaw dropped. It, it, was, it was a visual representation of... Mm -hmm. You know, so it was, well, thanks for picking up on that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I don't know why, but that image, very clear. So I'll put that as the image of this podcast so people understand. <laughs> but good talking to you. Good talking with you, Michael, always. Music by Dory Bavarsky and Mingja Chen. Next up, we have John Chow. Enjoy your week. John Chow.